Amen. Well, I got to say, last week, my head hurt the whole time because I was about to cry the whole time. You know that feeling, like, right before your tear ducts kind of work? It's like the pain. I, I felt that all week. And I was like, you know what? Today's going to be a great church Sunday because I'm not going to feel that again. And then I cried for service. So grateful to be here with all of you and so expectant and impactful. Hopefully, this will be impactful just through God's word. And, and honestly, I feel like to sum up where we're going, I just want to give you the title from the beginning, and it's this, Eager to Share Our Souls eager to share our souls. When I watched what happened last week, it reminded me of a verse that Paul says to this church in Thessalonica. And in just a minute, we're going to open up the story of the first time he goes to Thessalonica and plants this church. And he's, he has to actually leave pretty quickly, so he writes back this letter and he explains this. He says, we were so delighted to not just share the gospel, but to share our lives as well. And another translation says, we were eager to share souls. And what I'm seeing happening in our church is I think a lot of people are starting to discover the limits of trying to intellectualize God, meaning you don't have to be on the spiritual hamster wheel of knowing your Bible more and more and more and more, and that equals spiritual maturity. What I'm sensing happening is that people are waking up to the reality that God doesn't want to just transform your brain into a Bible encyclopedia. God wants to transform your whole life into a person of being, of love, in the image of Jesus. And we're seeing that in real time happen, and the stories of baptism were so impactful. And so Paul is going to go to this church in Thessalonica, and his entire argument for the truths that he presents to them, the claims that he has, is actually not in the doctrine themselves, but is in the lifestyle that he lived among them. He was eager to share his soul. And so we're going to go there in the scripture. So if you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. If you brought it, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. But I had fun with this in the first service, so I'm going to go for it again. If you already have your Christmas lights up, leave your Bible in the air. People are judging you. I'm not. You're the most joyful of us all. But Thanksgiving is still coming. Everybody turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to do a double portion here. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to have both verses. The reason why is because you're going to see the narrative account, but you're also going to see the first-person view of the account by Paul. So again, Acts 17, 1 Thessalonians 2. And it kind of reminded me this week, working through the passage of uh, the documentary, The Last Dance. Anybody saw that? It's like one thing to have been in the 90s and have seen Michael Jordan win six national championships. That's like the narrative. It's another thing to watch him on a screen say, it was personal to me. And you understood why they won six national championships or six NBA championships. And I feel like that's what's about to happen today for us. These doctrines, these things we read about in the Bible are about, to come per, are about to become personal to a real group of people. So if you have your Bible, again, Acts chapter 17, I've given you enough time. This is him leaving after he left Philippi. He was released from the prison, not really. God opened the door to the prison. And they, the, the jailer becomes a believer, and it's amazing. Salvation comes. So they go to this church in Thessalonica, or they plant this church in Thessalonica. And you need to know this about the city. It's about 200,000 people. It's on a seaport. It's 100 miles away from Philippi, and we're going to read the narrative of what happens. Acts 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded 
and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So what did we just read? We just read how what Paul and Silas do is they leave, they skip two towns because there's probably not a synagogue there. They arrive at Thessalonica, and here they begin to dialogue, to reason, to explain. They open up the scriptures, and they prove that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. They proclaim it to them. So obviously there's some people who receive that message and respond in faith. There's Jews, there's Greeks, there's, there's prominent women. But then also there's some Jews that were extremely jealous, and they sought to throw this group of men out of their town. So they go to Jason's house, where there's probably a house church that's been planted. And instead of finding Jason, Paul and Silas have snuck out the back door and on their way to Berea. Instead, they bring Jason out, and he has to pay post-bond, which means he had to pay a certain amount of financial security that they would never return. And the story ends. So Paul, a few years later, has to write back to them and say, here's why I had to write to you. Here's why I had to leave. And he clarifies from his perspective. We're going to read it now in 1 Thessalonians 2. If you have it, turn over there. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Just stop there. I find it fascinating that the king of doctrine himself, the apostle Paul, when defending the claims of truth, he does it on the basis of his character. He does it on the basis of relationship. He writes back and says, all those things they're trying to destroy me with, you know who I was. You know how I lived among you. You know it's not true. And so we're going to go back through this verse by verse, all the way back to Acts chapter 17, verse 1. So if you want to go back there, we're going to start there and work our way through this. It says this, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay, this is so important. You need to understand what happens here is what Paul does to all the other cities he'll eventually go to. This is what's known as logos. This is truth. This is reason. He goes up to this group of people who are Jewish who have a certain preconception about who God will be. They're arguing because the Messiah that the Jewish people believed in, there's no way that he would ever die at the hands of his own people. There's no way that he would suffer. He's the conquering king. So what Paul does, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them, which another word is dialogues with them. Because when you dialogue with people, the misconceptions about God are revealed. But notice what happens afterwards. This is what we can do with our lives. Everybody has a misconception about who God is. Everybody has false beliefs about who God is. So what you do is you dialogue with them to get them to reveal what those lies are, and then you bring them to the truth. So he moves from reasoning, dialoguing with them, to now explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. Why does he do that? It's because he knows that his entire argument is based upon the depth of truth in here. So what does that mean for us? It means your opinion is not as powerful as the living word of God. Let the Bible make your point. Sorry, let the Bible be the point and not be what you use to make your opinion come true. And I think what happens is he goes from this dialoguing to then reasoning to then explaining. And what the Bible can do is it's the deep in here calls to the deep in you. It's the deep in this word. This, deep, this is the living word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos. That means this is as deep as eternity itself. It's got the answers for your life. So he dialogues with them, then he reasons with them about that word of God. And he even argues later. He says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. I love that because that means this word of God has the power to seize your conscience and captivate your heart. To seize your conscience and captivate your heart. In other words, I read a theologian this week, and he was talking about the Christians who have turned the world upside down are the ones who had a vision of Jesus in their hearts and a Bible in their hands. The vision of Jesus in their hearts and a Bible in their hands. Ultimately, this is, I think, the most powerful part about studying the word of God together is that the truth of this message is clarified by the people of God. Meaning, what happens is, is that during this time where he's reasoning, he's arguing, all of the truth is the same. But the character of who Paul was is what made it stick. And so I think, why does the enemy do that? Like, why does the enemy come after our character? It's because he knows that if he can destroy the character of the messenger, he can undermine the validity of the message. So there's this true moment where he's reasoning, he's arguing, he's explaining, all these things are happening, but then ultimately, what do they get mad at? As soon as, as soon as Paul leaves, what do they say about him? They say, oh, he was just here for the greed. He was just here to build a brand. He was just here for his message. And Paul argues back and says, no, no, no. You knew who I was. And so let me just use an illustration really quick. Um, anybody have an argument recently? Everybody's so scared to raise their hand. <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, it means we have healthy marriages in the room, maybe. Um, courageous conversations is what we call them in marriage class. Okay, when you are losing an argument, what do you do? Like, let's just say the logic of your argument starts breaking down. Everybody's smiling at me. I don't know why. When you start losing an argument, what do you do? You bring out the low blows. 
You bring out the character. You bring out, well, you did this, and this is the fifth time I've taken out the trash in a row, and the dishes are still soaking over there. Like, you start bringing out all the things, right? You're like, that's because you're lazy. You start using these, like, identity words, right? Why? It's because you know, you know that once you start losing the logic of an argument, you have to play on emotion. What do you think Satan does to you? What do you think sin does to you? All of a sudden, the logic of the argument, it's not even about the argument anymore because you're so emotional about being right. And so what we see is that the effectiveness of your ministry is always in the life that you live, not just the gospel that you preach. And you see this over and over and over again in Paul's life. So he clarifies. He says, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Does this posture sound like somebody who's dictated by their emotion? He says, my identity is secure. I'm approved by God. And I'm entrusted with the gospel, which means this isn't even mine to possess. It's a free gift of God for anyone who would believe. And not to mention, at the end of the day, I wasn't even there trying to please you. I was there to please God who tests the heart. And that posture for me, I think, is why his message landed the way that it did. If you wonder, I I was wrestling with this all week. If you wonder, what is it about some people in this story who could hear the facts right in front of their faces and some people respond in in faith and obedience and give their life to Jesus and change, whereas these other people are so jealous? If it's the same truth in front of both of them, what is happening? Why doesn't everybody immediately come to know Jesus? Why doesn't everybody immediately respond? And why do some of the people get jealous? And I think it has to do with what this word, these two words, spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. So if you want a definition of what that means, I'm just going to throw it on the screen. Spiritual blindness is not your inability to see the truth in front of you. Spiritual blindness is your inability to value what that truth means for you. You got to think deeply about this one. Spiritual blindness is not your inability to see what's right in front of you, right in front of your faces. The facts are right in front of these people. It just didn't matter to them. It's why in verse 3, those two words are so important to pay attention to. If you hear nothing else, when he says explaining and proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he had to suffer and he had to rise, when you see verse 3, you need to know this is Luke doing something really intentional. Because in the chapter earlier, he used the same word to describe the Lord breaking open Lydia's heart. So now what he's saying is he's explaining and proving, which means he's not just opening up the truth. He is using the truth to break down the door of these people's hearts. And their spiritual blindness for so many of us is our inability to value what is right in front of us, to care what this book says. So your prayer tomorrow in your quiet time is not, God, help me just understand this. Help me never forget this. Help me know this. Your prayer is, God, help me care. Help me know you. Help this matter to me. You suffered? You died? If that is true, this changes everything about me. So you're like, what is happening? Why do I feel spiritually blind to the reality that's right in front of me? Well, it's because of your sin? It's because of your circumstances? It's because of the situations that you find yourself in? It's almost like there's a cataract over your soul. If you know what that is, it's like a blind spot in your eye where you can't see. It's almost like there's this opaqueness that's blocking in the light of truth, trying to get deeply into your soul. And it's why some of you in this room right now, it's like it doesn't matter how hard you rub your eyes, you still can't see. 
Doesn't matter how many times you try to unclog your ears, you still can't hear. Doesn't matter how many times you try to wash yourself clean, you still feel dirty. It's because the Holy Spirit has to waken you up to the reality that you are his. And he's the one who will make you care about the truth here. And he's the one who is doing the work as Paul was revealing the truth. And that is why Paul ends by proclaiming. You notice that in verse four? I love that. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying, Jesus is king. And if you have the ears of it, it probably says the Christ, not the Messiah. It's because it's the Greek word of Messiah. He's saying there's a new king. And so if you're a Christian in the room, like this is the part where you should be smiling and getting a little excited because your, your heart has been seized by this great affection. Like your life has been transformed. Like you now have this foundation that is the cornerstone of Christ, but also, Christian, hear me in the room. Notice what Paul does. He doesn't just stop at dialoguing and talking about what's going on in life. He doesn't just stop by opening up the Bible and going to all the different Bible studies. He ends with proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is. And if there's a lie that I see happening in our current generation, especially the college students that I get, I get to lead, the lie is this. I'll share the gospel with my life and when necessary, use words. Take it off your Instagram bio. That is a horrible statement right now, please. Here's why that matters. It's because your lifestyle that you live, the way that you conduct your life, is what lays the foundation for your words to have value. But you always have to use words. Romans 10, how can they hear if no one preaches to them? And so I'm just telling you, some of you in this room right now, what you are doing in a lot of ways is known as biblical flattery. It means you are tailoring the truth to fit popular opinion. And Paul argues for, against that directly. Verse five, you know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So flattery is not just saying nice things. When you see that, I think a lot of us immediately thought of like saying nice things to get what I want. What he is saying here is exactly what I just described to you. This is the opposite of, anti, this is the opposite of boldness. This is you being unwilling to deliver the hard word of truth to a friend that you love so deeply. So what happens is I watch college students and I watch friends and I watch people start to live further away from the truth and the ways of God to try to reach their friend. And then when they try to preach this message to their friend, there's no power in it because their lifestyle doesn't match with what they're saying. And so I, I heard a mentor friend tell me this, and you can steal this because I'm stealing it from him. He said, you need to live in such a way that it forces people to take your God seriously. And then you tell them about him. You don't just live that way. You tell them about them. And Paul says, we did not use flattery to put on a mask, to cover up some false impure motive or greed. And so I'm going to ask you this question. This is the first. We're going to kind of ask questions as we go through the scripture. But is your distance from God established by fact or influenced by feeling? Is your distance from God established by fact or is it influenced by feeling? And the reason why I'm asking you that question the way I'm asking it is because I think a lot of people who feel distant from God, it's not established in reality. It's a false reality that's been crea being created by your feelings. And so when I think about what I could do right now in this time, I think about the fact that I could go through every single Old Testament promise 
and convince you that there's evidence that Jesus is real. I could go through the fact that there was a real man, historical evidence that we see named Jesus who lived and walked on this earth and his body is yet to be found. I could show you how this book is inerrant, it's perfect, it's infallible, the Holy Spirit inspired it. I could go through every single evidence, even in my own life, of miracle after miracle after miracle. And I could show you story after story after story of the logical evidence of why Jesus is the Messiah. And some of you would still not hear me. You'd still be blind to the truth because this isn't about what's true. This is about your damaged heart. You've been hurt. You felt pain. And your emotions are starting to dictate your reality more than life itself, which is Jesus. And you're so frustrated. And I've seen guy after guy who I've been able to mentor or disciple sit in front of me. And what they need is not me to describe one more fact about this book. They need, they need me to give them a hug. And I'm not saying this isn't important. Obviously, this is important. What I'm saying is that some of you in this room, you need to realize the fact and be honest and admit the fact that why you are far from God is not because of God. It's because of someone that hurt you. It's because of your past. And Jeremiah even argues that. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Meaning no amount of logic in the world can get you to finally say, I'm sorry. No amount of logic in the world can get you to finally say, hey, you're forgiven. The Holy Spirit of God can do that. And he can do that work deep in you. So for the skeptic in the room, I just got to tell you right now that most of becoming a Christian, all of us have realized that what happens is you have to surrender your, your control. You have to surrender your will to his. And for all the Christians in the room, I just got to tell you right now that white-knuckled obedience might not be the solution to your roller coaster of emotions. I'm just telling you right now that there is something better to be offered. There is something better in the scriptures. And the answer that you will find is once you realize that there is truth to be had, whether or not you feel like it's true. And so sometimes you have to speak your identity before you believe it. So we're going to move on. Right afterwards, there's some people that receive the message, the Jews and the Greeks and these women. But then there's some people that are mad and they're jealous. Verse 5. But the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Okay, circle that word jealous. This comes from the same Greek word, jealous, as being zealous. So as you walked into this building, you saw zeal for your house consumes me, which means the same word, like the, I want to be set on fire for the glory of God, zeal for your house consumes me, is the same word being used here in Greek, which is saying, man, I want those people to burn. I don't want to be set on fire. Like it's this thing, it's this boiling envy inside of you. And so I started asking the question this week. Maybe you can ask it right now. Why were they so jealous? Why were they so, je why were they so jealous? Well, I think, number one, they were jealous because what was being taught was contradicting what they were teaching. I think, number two, they were upset about the crowd. Which, by the way, I just got to say it. No one seems to care what you have to say until there's a crowd, and then everyone seems to care. Pharisees didn't care about Jesus until there was 5,000 people looking for a meal. And lastly, this is the most important. This is what I really think the heart of this message is. I think they were jealous because they felt their kingdom was threatened. And I've started to notice in my life that where I am jealous is revealing where I'm trying to build my kingdom. Where I am jealous is where I'm trying to build my, my kingdom and establish my identity. And so, in essence, what you're trying to do is you're trying to grab somebody's position that they have 
or you're trying to possess something that is now theirs and not yours. So it's all about this position and there's all, it's all about this possession where the Christian life, the essence of living a Christian life means that you are completely positionless and you are possessionless. Which means I have no position anymore in this life. It means I am a servant of the most high king. It means I must decrease, he must increase. It means you are now nothing in the Christian life. But also at the same time, you have everything. And then over here, you, you now everything that it was entrusted to you is now to be used to steward for the glory and grace of Jesus. And so you don't even own anything anymore. And the reason why I'm saying that is because empire after empire, ruler after ruler, government after government, politician after politician has tried to stamp out Christianity over and over and over again. But here's the truth. You cannot take someone from a throne that they are not on. And you can't take something from someone who has nothing. In the Christian life, we have nothing, and yet we have everything. Because now my position is not a status or a symbol or a brand. My, my position is a son who is loved by the cherished king, holy and dearly loved as a chosen child of God. And at the same time, I have Christ. Therefore, I don't need anything else. It is completely positionless and possessionless. Here's what I think is interesting. I think that these Jews were right and feeling jealous. Because when the world looks at what happens here every Sunday, they may never understand it, but at the end of the day, they're probably jealous of it. Because Jesus was jealous for his bride. The love that's on, available, the depth of soul care on display, that someone, the call of every person in this room who's a Christian, is to give their life away or each other, unified by one spirit, one God? Yes. And that is why I think the Jews were so jealous of the story they're reading. So my second question is this. Is your zeal to be right sacrificing relationships that are real? Is your zeal to be right sacrificing relationships that are real? Because the most challenging aspect about the Jews to me is that they probably thought they were right that that emotion that welled up inside of them that we now see as jealousy for them, they probably thought it was a righteous zeal for God's law. They were just trying to protect the message. They were just trying to do the right thing, right? And for us, we can do the exact same thing in our jealous anger and not even realize it. And yet, here's where it kind of flipped for me, and I was like, okay, they knew better than that. Because you can say you claim one thing, but your decisions don't lie. And look what happens. It says they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting. Now stop there. If these two words are ever true about your life, you're probably not in a posture of love. You're probably sacrificing some real relationships. And what I mean by that is, I mean, if you are ever dragging somebody else's reputation through the mud to feel better about yourself, or you are shouting at somebody to get your opinion across, even if it's behind a screen, probably not really loving somebody. Because I have yet to find somebody who is truly loving that gets the last word. I've, seen, I've never seen it. So if you do and it works, come back to me. Tell me about it, because it never happened. Because when we care so much about my position and my possessions 
and my things and my stuff and my kingdom and what's happening in my life and what's happening through my life, even the good things. When I get so obsessed with the mission of this church or the, or the mission of that nonprofit ministry or, or the future of good things, but I get so obsessed about the message and I miss out on the people, then all of a sudden that righteous zeal that is good can become jealous anger to protect my kingdom. And so I'm just telling you that pride can take many forms. But when jealousy and pride come together, they force us to try to cram our vision of rightness down everyone else's throat. And if you're a Christian, sometimes do that in Jesus' name. And I'm saying, is your zeal to be right, sacrificing relationships with people who are real? Always choose people. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that is exactly what Paul does here. We're going to see it in a second. Let's finish the story. These men, verse 6, who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and others postpone and let them go. You can tell how mad the Jews are if they're willing to partner with the Romans. And I say that because I think a lot of us in this room, you don't realize that who you partner with matters in life to try to get your way and how you justify that for the greater good and here we see Jason, which Jason, by the way, is a person of influence. He's a person of wealth. He's the one who now becomes the, the cinder of the house church movement here. Like this, it's in his house. The church is in his house. But I think it's so important for us to pay attention that if you have influence in this room, if you are a person of means, if you have power in this room, how you wield that power and who you leverage your influence for reveals a lot about what you think about the kingdom of God. It just does. And here we got a man named Jason who has a lot of wealth, has a house, and what does he do? He welcomes people into his home, and then he protects Paul. He pays a large sum to assure that he will never come back. And he takes on the whole brunt of the situation. But now let's look to Paul. Paul, in his argument that we just read, 1 Thessalonians 2, notice how he never drags the Jews through the mud with his doctrine. He never comes back and says, you should believe this because God is mad at you and God, but here's the truth and you need to know this. What he does, he says, look, we shared our lives with you. We loved you. Verse six, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And so I need you to see these two things. What's being said right here is Paul is establishing that there's not just another king like a Caesar. There is another kind of king named Jesus. He's also establishing this kind of king named Jesus is trying to establish the new essence of a brand new kingdom. So he starts off, remember, this is, there's another king. That's what he says. What does that other king mean? He's telling all the Jewish people that this is the kind of king who conquers with ambassadors, not armies. His main weapon is grace and truth. This king went to the cross before he claimed his crown. This king wants to redeem you so that one day he can reign with you. This kind of king had to go all the way in the grave that when he rose, you and I could rise with him. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. There is another king. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. But then on the back end of that, he talks about the essence of the new kingdom and that's where he's getting at with the whole young children thing. Anybody else think that's weird? He's saying, look, I could have asserted my authority which means I'm the leader, I'm the boss. I am the apostle Paul. I'm the leader of the church. 
And I could have used that to assert my authority and dominate. But instead, I became like a little children, a young child among you. You know what he's saying? He's describing the kingdom of God that Jesus gave the disciples when they were arguing. You remember that scene? You know what I'm talking about where they're arguing? They're like, which one is the greatest? Which one of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he's like, I like to think that he's just like, oh, Lord, help me. And like, Father, help, please. And I like to think that's, that's happening. And then he's like, hey, and he grabs the young child, and he brings this young child into the center. And they're all around the circle kind of arguing. And he puts the child in the middle. And he says, whoever does not become like this child will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, whoa, okay, you got our attention. And then he says, and whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends with this punch. And he says, and whoever of you welcomes this little child welcomes me. That's the kingdom of God. That's the essence of the kind of kingdom we're a part of. And so I want to finish with this question and ask you guys. It's kind of a complicated question, but I hope it will speak deeply to you. Is your desired legacy fueled by purpose or filled with people? And let me explain because it's really complicated, but I'm trying to get to that layer beneath the surface that so many of you are facing. Because right now I think a lot of you would justify your purpose with what you're doing with people and how you're using people. You're like, well, it's for a greater purpose and it's for a greater thing. It's for God always addresses people. And so ultimately what I think is really happening is that in our society, we're so obsessed with our individuality. We're so obsessed with our personal calling. We're so obsessed with our individualistic legacy that we want to create that we end up chasing our own personal purpose and sacrificing people along the way. And Paul never does that. And what I mean by that is he always, always, always practically lived for people, not just theoretically. And so I think for us in, in this room, we just gotta realize there's so much going on that's trying to vie for your attention and your affection and also trying to give you the life that you always wanted. And it's interesting because Andy was the one who kind of opened up the service. And one of the first times we had the, the chance to hang out, we were on a, a drive and I just asked him, I was like, hey, you're from South Africa. Like what's something about America that kind of, blew you away or what's what just tell me about your first impression of America you know what he said of all the things I didn't think he'd say this he said I'm kind of surprised at how in America every single building is named after somebody I was like what that's that's what surprised you he's like yeah, yeah yeah it's almost like in America everybody is so afraid of dying and everybody is so afraid of being forgotten they'll do whatever it takes to try to keep their legacy going and so we name buildings after people. And I'm not hating on anybody who has a building named after them. We name buildings after people who are, are legends, who have done amazing things in our community, who have done all these awesome things. And what I'm seeing in the book of Acts and what I'm seeing in 1 Thessalonians is Paul is like, hey, that's not the goal. The goal is not that one day when you die, everybody remembers you and says, man, that guy was a legend. The goal is that you die, everybody says, Jesus is amazing. And look at this legacy of people. Look at all the people around them. Look what happened when they gave themselves away. In fact, that's exactly the argument that Paul makes. Verse 19, for what is our hope? Our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. He is saying here, pay attention, look at me. He's saying here, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns, I am not going to tell him, look at all the churches we planted. 
I'm not going to tell them, look at all the money that we raised. I'm not going to tell them all the mission trips we were part of. I'm not going to tell them all about the miracles that I got to witness and provide and be a part of. When Jesus comes back, I'm going to show him you. And I'm going to give him our relationships that are real. I didn't assert my authority. I became like a young child. And then he finishes the statement and says this, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. He reaches for the most intimate relationship. A nursing mother. He said, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So my question is, who are you sharing your life with? Who are you eager to bear your soul with? Because I believe that's the point of it all, that we get to give Jesus back some people. And so to kind of close our time together, this week was very full circle for me in that uh, the director of this ministry in Ecuador was here. And if you don't know anything about my story, I, I didn't think I was gonna go into it today, but here I am, is that I actually broke my face. I was in an accident where honestly, a lot of people have told me that I should have died. And it happened about seven months ago. And so seeing Boris, this leader of this ministry this week was full circle and it's right after baptism. So baptism is happening and I'm thinking all week of how I want to be eager to share my soul with all of you in this room and preach the word of God. And it was this powerful moment for me because I was thinking back about baptism and a lot of you don't know this, but there's this man named Quinn who got baptized at the 5 p.m. service and he stood up and in that moment, there were so many amazing things happening. And it was this epic moment of love where he is showing you that Jesus really did win my story. And so it's full circle for me because I thought back. I thought back to the fact that, you know what's interesting? Is that the first Sunday that I worked after the accident that happened, I'm standing there, I'll never forget it. I'm standing there with a group of people, staff members, and up walks this young man. He's already got kind of tears in his eyes before he even gets to us, and he gets up to us, and he begins to bear his soul. He eagerly shares everything that's happening in his life, and I gotta tell you, it was not a bow. There was no bow at the end of this story. He begins opening up about his alcoholism with his mom. He begins opening up about the fact that he's been uh, transitioning genders. He opens up the fact that he's been abused as a kid, and he's opening up, and he's pouring out his soul, and the only thing we could do was just hug him. Only thing we could do is say, I know you feel so isolated and alone, but we're here. I know you just poured out your soul. Here we are. And so this past Sunday, as I watch him walk up those steps, and as I watch him go into the water, it was like watching heaven collide with earth. As he goes underwater and comes back out, and his face is radiant, and he's full of joy, and Jesus wins. And there's this hoopla unadulterated worship, everybody's celebrating. Great are you, Lord. You did things like this. And after that moment, we leave and everybody's left and it's, it's kind of quiet and it's darkening down and I'm walking out and I'm literally leaving. I'm almost in the parking lot and there's this mom that comes up to me and she stops me and I know her because she's been praying for me and my accident and, and I knew her because she knew Quinn so she's been praying for Quinn for the last couple months asking God to do something in his life and she just looks at me and she's smiling and she says, you know how amazing this is? What you just saw, and I was just like, okay, what, what do you mean? She said, what if God is so good and God is so loving that he didn't let you die that day in Ecuador so that you could have the joy of Quinn's story and witnessing it? 
What if us being eager to share our souls is the goal? What if the very people in your life who you feel so disconnected from and so distant from are the people who you are called to bear your soul with? Because as I watched that young man resurrect in the water, I thought about Jesus. And I thought about the fact that, that one who paid for our sins sweat blood the night before he died of empathy for you. That one day, you and I, all of us in this room, we will come to God and we will have the gift of the people in our lives. And so I just want to tell you right now, look at me real quick. If you are in this spot of feeling exactly how Quinn was, where you're surrounded by all these people and you feel isolated, you feel like no one is around you, you feel like the lies of the enemy are taking control of your life, I need to tell you right now that there is a God in heaven who loves you, who wants you, who cares for you, and there are people in this room whose joy it would be to see you resurrect with Jesus himself, but you have to relinquish that control and you have to eagerly give over your soul and share it. And for everyone else in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus, we're gonna take communion because we're just gonna remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. So you can get out those elements. We're gonna celebrate the fact that we have life today because his blood was shed. You can raise your hand if you didn't get one on your way in. The team will bring one to you. We get to commune with the Father. We get to enjoy his presence. And so I just want to challenge you in this time, husbands, pray over your wives, but maybe this is a time for you. If you're not a believer, you ask God if he's there. Ask him to make this matter. Ask him to break open your heart. And maybe this is a time for you to finally shake off the numbness with God and worship fully. So take some time, take some communion. Take some communion. We're going to worship in just a moment.